So our text today is John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, as we have been teaching this Advent series, this Advent season, uh, we've been looking at John's first chapter, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and we have now finished the prologue and have made our way now into um, what is a much more narrative section of John, and it is uh, where John the Apostle writes about John the Baptist. And so my hope is that as I'm talking today, I can hopefully keep the two distinguished um, between uh, John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer. If I just say John, I'm sorry, it's up to you to figure out which John I'm talking about. Uh, But hopefully we can keep them distinguished as much as possible as we uh, study today. So John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 19 and read through verse 34. So if you have your Bibles, John Chapter 1, verse 19 through verse 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, So they said to him, excuse me, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remained, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord God, now that we have read your word, read our text in its entirety, Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with us today as we study, that as I preach today, that you would use me as your instrument. Uh, Though I am a rusty, broken down, imperfect instrument, Lord, I pray that you would use my words, my voice, uh, to serve your purposes in spite of my sin and in spite of my brokenness. Lord, I pray that uh, we as a church today would be um, hit by what feels like a ton of bricks uh, when we are impacted by the reality of your word and Jesus, your son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So as we begin today, I want to open by um, talking about a classic book written by C.S. Lewis, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Because as I think about this, this text and this man, John the Baptist, who has entered into the scene, has been sent into the world 
to act as a forerunner for the Christ. John the Baptist has come to proclaim what is the title of our sermon today and what we see in our text, uh, Behold the Lamb of God. And I find it, uh, when I read the Chronicles of Narnia, when I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read the book, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. But as the, the Pevensey children first discover Narnia, they come into this scene, they enter Narnia at a time when Narnia is facing a great, deep, dark winter. A winter that never ends. A, a winter that is described as never having a Christmas. It is always winter, but never Christmas in Narnia because of the reign of the White Witch. It was entirely cold, frozen. It was essentially a barren wasteland because of this dark, dark and deep winter. But then as these children, these four children, the Pevensies, enter Narnia, along with them comes hope. As these children enter Narnia, hope comes along with them. When they first meet uh, Mr. Beaver, he is filled with hope. He's filled with hope because he knows what is coming along with these children. Hope appears along with the Pevensey children in the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia, not because the children were so great and so amazing. They were actually quite ordinary, honestly. But hope came along with them because their coming pointed to the coming of another. The entering of the children into Narnia pointed to, according to the prophecy that was given, pointed to the coming of Aslan, the king, the ruler, the true hero of the story. This is why it is that when the children entered Narnia, hope entered Narnia, not because the children were so amazing, but because they pointed to the coming of Aslan. As Mr. Beaver makes the point when he quotes the Narnian rhyme about Aslan, he says in the rhyme, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. Aslan was the hero. He was the savior of Narnia that brought hope, that brought joy, that brought peace. And these children, when they entered Narnia, because of the prophecy, because of what was to come, they brought along with them hope because of the one with whom they were pointing to, because they were pointing to the one where true hope was to be found. In the same way, if you haven't picked up on this already, John the Baptist enters the scene and is discussed in our text here. And he's not discussed in our text as the hero of the story, though John the Baptist was a great man. But he's not the hero of our story. John's role and the reason as we read about John, we find hope is not because of him and his baptism, but because he was pointing to another just like the Pevensey children pointed to and were a reminder of the coming of Aslan, so John the Baptist is a reminder of the coming and the advent of the Savior, of Jesus Christ. So point number one as we look at our text is looking at John the Baptist and his witness, the witness of John the Baptist. In the first part of our passage, we see the religious leaders uh, sending their, uh, their agents because they were very curious as to who John was and, and what John was doing. So they sent messengers to try and ascertain answers to their questions. 
Now, they already had assumptions about who John might be or who they perhaps feared he was. And the main thing they wanted to know was whether or not he is the Christ. That's why when they first meet John and ask who he is, he knows what they're really asking. And so, John the Baptist confesses and says, I am not the Christ. You see, John the Baptist knew that uh, what they wanted to know. And he was more than happy to tell them that he was not the Christ. And this is really quite refreshing when we consider and look over the long list throughout history of people who have been happy to falsely claim that they were the Christ or that they were in some way Jesus incarnate. Over and over again, we've seen throughout history, even in current days, people claiming to be Christ, claiming to be Messiahs and and whole religions and cults forming around them. And John could have done something very similar to that. I mean, he already had a following. He already had disciples. But John doesn't do that. Instead, he denies it, says, I am not the Christ. So these Jews continue to ask him. They ask him if he's Elijah, which might seem like a weird question to us to ask John the Baptist if he was Elijah, this prophet from the Old Testament from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, we would maybe think it's a weird question, but it's really not when you consider that there were actually some legitimate things that might indicate or lead one to believe along these lines. Because we know that uh, John the Baptist, like Elijah, was a prophet from the Lord. Elijah being among the most well-known prophets, one of the most well-known popular prophets that there ever was. And now John the Baptist being the first one for hundreds of years. We also know that John's appearance is described in Matthew as being very similar to Elijah's appearance. John wore a garment of camel hair, Matthew tells us, and a leather belt. And Elijah, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings, is described in a very similar way, described as having a coat of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And also recognize the fact that Elijah, in the Old Testament, didn't actually die. He was one of only two people who didn't actually die, but was taken into heaven miraculously. He was taken into heaven by a chariot of fire, the word tells us. So it would make sense then that John the Baptist was the return of Elijah, was Elijah come back. But again, John denies this, says, nope, I'm not Elijah. And then they go on to ask him if he is the prophet. Notice they say the prophet, not a prophet, but are you the prophet? And this is a reference most likely to a prediction made in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses writes that the Lord will raise up for them a prophet like himself from among their brothers. So the problem is what the Jewish leaders failed to understand in asking him if he was the prophet, they actually failed to understand the fact that this predicted prophet was the Messiah. And ultimately, they failed not only to understand that, but they failed to understand that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. In fact, both Peter and Stephen in the book of Acts indict the Jews in this way and proclaim that Jesus was the promised prophet and said that the people not only rejected him as the prophet, but also ultimately killed him on a cross. Jesus was the prophet that was predicted in Deuteronomy 18. 
He was the one raised up like Moses from among their brothers. But the thing is, Jesus was the new and the better Moses. We use this language somewhat regularly in in our church today, this, this idea of Jesus being the new and the better Adam, or the new and the better David, or in this case, the new and the better Moses. For what did Moses do? What is he most known for? Why is Moses considered so great in the eyes of the Jewish people? It was for his leading the people out of, out of Egypt, right? In the Exodus story. He was the one that led the people out, that led them through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. How much more is Jesus Christ like Moses? He has come. He is the one to lead his people out of slavery, out of bondage to sin, through the Red Sea of his blood on the cross and into the promised land. Jesus is truly the new and the better Moses that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. But again, John the Baptist says, nope, I'm not the prophet. And his response to these questions, along with the other actions that we see from John the Baptist throughout uh, this text, are exactly what you would hope to see from the forerunner of Jesus. They're an example for us to follow as well. Because in this passage, what we see is we see John truly living out what he says later in chapter 3, verse 30. One of the most well-known phrases John ever spoke when he says, he must increase and I must decrease. John, in John the Baptist was, was so, so filled with humility. This is a great example for us. Even though we are not the forerunner to Christ, the statement should still be made of us, we must decrease and Christ must increase. Though sadly, that's not often how we live our lives. But John the Baptist's humility was such that he says he's not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who comes after him. He totally could have made a name for himself. John totally could have had a great following, great popularity, and yet he chose not to in order to make Christ central in his ministry and in the mind of his followers. They didn't, he did not want his followers being bogged down or distracted by him or by his message or by his baptism. He wanted to point them to Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that the only thing that made him unique or made him special was the uniqueness and the special nature of the one to whom he was pointing. In fact, one theologian likened John the Baptist to a root of a tree protruding out of the ground and reminding us the existence of the tree. The root of the tree pointing to the tree itself, pointing to Christ, saying, Behold, this is John the Baptist. He was humble to the point that even in the following passages past our text today, we see two of his fathers, two of his followers, straight up leave him in order to go follow Jesus. And that was his plan. That was his desire, was that his followers would leave him and follow Christ. And we see this happen multiple times throughout the book of John. John was proclaiming to the world, behold, Jesus I want us to now turn and take a look for a minute, especially at who it is that we are to behold. Point number two, behold the Lord. You might notice that um, I have the word Lord in all caps. 
Now, why would I put it in all caps? Why would anyone use the word LORD in all caps? For those of you who would consider yourself or maybe desire to be uh, Old Testament scholars, and I would encourage all of you to aspire to be Old Testament scholars, you might recognize why it is that someone would do that. You see, John the Baptist in verse 23 was quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, when he's referencing the Lord, the word Lord is used in all caps. And if you're unfamiliar, the reason that the word Lord was used in all caps in the Old Testament was when it was directly referring to Yahweh or Jehovah, the proper name for God the Father. And that is exactly how it is used in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So that when John now says, I am the voice crying out, make way the path of the Lord, he is explicitly stating, he is explicitly declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only that he is the Messiah, but that he is Yahweh, that he is God in flesh as though that hasn't already been established enough from the prologue of John, we see it now from John the Baptist again. Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. That's the point that he is making here in this verse. And it's a wonder that they didn't try and kill him right then and there on the spot, claiming that this would be blasphemy. But John the Baptist here is saying, Behold Yahweh. Behold the Lord. Which is also what the writer of John does through the prologue of his book, but also throughout the entirety of the book, pointing to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is God. Even John the Baptist knows that this is no mere human being. And he says this based on what he has already witnessed at the baptism of Jesus, which has already taken place. And he talks about it in verse 31 through 34, where he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John was making these claims not on his own authority, not even simply on his own observations, though that could have been enough, but he was making them based on what God had told him. He was appealing to an authority far greater than himself. He was appealing to the greatest and highest authority that there is, God the Father. He had received this revelation directly from God that this not only was Jesus of Nazareth, but that this was Jesus, God in flesh. Point number three, behold the king. I think it's important that we remember when we think about Christ, not to simply view Christ in light of his earthly ministry and his interactions with people. Certainly those are key and they are necessary to understanding Christ. In fact, a book that we have in the back. If you don't have a copy of it, feel free to take a free copy of the book, Gentle and Lowly. It is directly speaking to this idea, this idea that God, that Jesus, when he interacts with people, does so in a way that is kind, that is gracious. He is merciful. He is gentle. He is lowly. He reaches in 
uh, to the lives of the most vulnerable, the lives of, of those most in need, and deals with them gently and kindly. Jesus, our Savior, our good shepherd. But it is also true that Jesus is the King of kings. In order to help us remember this picture of Christ, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. One of my top three favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Revelation chapter 5. In fact, it's so good, I can't even read for you just a part of it. We're just going to read the whole thing because it's that good. Revelation chapter 5 says this. This is the revelation of John as he is in the throne room. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We must never forget this image of Christ, the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who stands in heaven at the right hand of God, victorious, the king of kings, the ruler of all, the one worthy to open the scroll. The gospel has a remarkable ability, unlike nothing else, to turn tears of joy into tears of sorrow. Or tears of, uh, excuse me, to turn tears into joy and turn sorrow into celebration. And Revelation 5 is one of the most beautiful pictures of this, where John is now standing crying, weeping. Why? Because there's no one found worthy to open the scroll. But just a few moments later, not only has his weeping ceased, 
but rejoicing throughout all the heavens and all the earth and everything under the earth breaks out. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, for he has conquered. This is also the idea that comes as John is speaking of Christ, the king coming to claim his prize, coming to claim what is his, namely those who the father has given him. This was the lamb who was come to be slain, but this was also the lion of Judah come to exercise his authority and rescue his people. Again, there is hardly any greater illustration or allegory of this ever written outside of Scripture than the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. This picture of Aslan as this great, fierce, strong lion. No one, when they see Aslan come, comes, thinks he is weak. Even as he lie there on the stone table, no one thought for a moment, look at this guy, he's so puny. He was intimidating from the first to the last. And what is amazing is this picture of this great king, this mighty lion of the tribe of Judah, who then laid down his life and was sacrificed as a lamb. At the beaver's house in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, after dinner, Edmund asks a somewhat silly question. He asks if the white witch wouldn't just turn Aslan into stone too, like she does everyone else, all her other enemies. And Mr. Beaver's response is awesome. He said with a laugh, Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no. He'll put all to rights. This is true of our God. This is true of the lamb who was slain. Behold, the lamb was also behold the king conquering, coming in authority to rescue his people. The lion of Judah is supreme in his authority and his might. And it is all that the enemy can do to stand before him for even a moment. And even that is only by his authority. Point number four, behold salvation. The advent of Christ is truly the advent of salvation. As Aaron already said, Advent means coming. The coming of Christ is the coming of salvation. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. This is nothing new. I'm not saying anything you didn't already know. I'm not saying anything you haven't already heard. Yet it's something that's important for us to say over and over and over again and remind ourselves and the world of. In fact, according to Jesus himself, salvation does not come through even looking in the scriptures. Look what he says in John 5, 37 through 40. As he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, he says, <clears throat> And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And then Jesus says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
Jesus is telling these Pharisees who were so convinced that their knowledge of the scriptures, that their understanding of scriptures, and their seeking to obey the scriptures would lead for them, lead them to salvation and eternal life. And Jesus is saying, no, eternal life is found in me. It is scriptures that bear witness about me. It is not the scriptures that can save you. It is Christ. No matter how well any of us in here knows God's word, we can have it memorized from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of Revelation, and it will make no difference to our salvation if we fail to miss the one to whom the Bible is witness. If we fail to miss Christ and find our salvation in him, then we have no salvation. The word of God itself bears witness to Christ. He is the one in whom we have salvation, not in the words of Scripture. Salvation is found in Christ. It's found in him because he is our Passover lamb. It is by his blood that we are spared from the wrath of God. It's been said that Christianity is a bloody religion. And this is largely true. It's demonstrated even by many of the songs that we sing. I don't know of, of many people that like to sing about blood as much as Christians do. We sing nothing but the blood. We sing, oh, how precious is the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Even when we take the Lord's Supper, we reference over and over again the blood of Christ. Think about this. We glory in the death and in the blood of the very Savior that we worship. Because life is found in that blood. His blood was shed because a million gallons of our own blood couldn't scratch the surface of the debt that we owe to Christ. Of the debt that we owe to a holy God. It's the song that we sang, His mercy is more. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Yet John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our blood can't scratch the surface, but Christ's blood can cover the sins of all, of the entire world. All through the Bible, the pages are stained with blood. The blood of God's enemies, the blood of sacrifices, and the blood of the Lamb. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, all that they do, and they do serve a purpose. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember that we, we acknowledge the fact that the blood of animals never saved anyone, never forgave anyone's sins. But the Old Testament sacrifices do serve a purpose, even though they're not able to remove our sin. The purpose that they serve is twofold. First, they demonstrate the severity and the disgusting nature of sin, because it was such a bloody and nasty process to sacrifice an animal. I think it's easy for us sometimes to fail to grasp the graphic nature of sacrifice. And, and maybe a part of this is because uh, if you're like me, what you oftentimes think of, when we think of the original Passover in, uh, in Exodus, that they had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. If you're like me, what oftentimes comes to your mind is Prince of Egypt. And you see this cartoon image of the blood being spread across the, the doorpost. And everyone is still clean. The blood just goes on nice and neat. Barely a drop gets where you don't want it. I mean, it's just, it's just too neat, to be perfectly honest, because if they showed it the way it actually should be shown, it wouldn't have been rated G. 
or PG, or whatever it was rated. I think it was rated PG. Well, it would have been rated PG-13 or R for the graphic nature that it would have been. Because the reality is, sacrifices were gross and nasty and gruesome. They were not pretty. They were not pretty. If you have ever seen, maybe hunters might have a better picture of this. If you are maybe a deer hunter in here today and, and you've killed a deer, maybe had an incident where things did not go the way they should, and it can get really gruesome and really bloody really fast. Even the task of cleaning out the inside of a deer, if you've ever seen someone right after they do it, they look gross. They look disgusting, covered in blood. And the sacrifices in the Old Testament were far more gruesome than that. Even consider this, I, I kind of, it's a small picture, but I was given just, a, I think, a taste at one, to, one point of, of how much I failed to understand the, the gruesome nature of animal sacrifice when uh, we had, we used to have this little Yorkie uh, when I lived at home with my family and with my mom, and, uh, and her name was Maggie, and um, we would give her her haircuts because we were too cheap to take her to have someone cut her hair, so we would give them to her, and... Um, and there was this one time I was cutting her hair and I accidentally nicked her ear. And if you've ever done that, and she didn't make a peep, I heard someone gasp. She was okay, I promise. I, but I nicked her just barely and didn't, she didn't flinch, she didn't make a peep. But before I knew it, blood was pooling on the floor. It was all over my hands, it was on my sleeves. And then looked to see that I had nicked her ear and there's apparently a lot of blood vessels in a dog's ear. And so blood was just kind of getting everywhere. And it got even worse when she shook like dogs do literally all up the wall, on the ceiling, down the other wall, all over the floor. The bathroom was a straight mess. And this was simply from nicking a Yorkshire Terrier's ear. Little Yorkie ear, just a nick. I can only imagine the mess, the bloodiness, the gruesomeness of sacrificing an entire lamb. So the first point of animal sacrifices was to demonstrate the severity of sin, the consequences that it wrought, the punishment that it deserves, because sin is gruesome, and the consequences of it is gruesome and severe. The second purpose of animals was to point us to the coming sacrificial lamb of God, the lamb of God that is pointed to and announced by John the Baptist. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, being led to the slaughter, the spotless lamb who would die so that we could go free. He is our substitute, and he is the only acceptable substitute for sinful people. He was the most extraordinary thing that has ever existed on planet earth, and yet he was about to be crushed, destroyed, broken down by God's wrath. Think about this in light of all the effort that John has gone to in order to convey to us the glory of Christ. But the first 18 verses of John's gospel, we're left going, there is no one like this Savior. There is no one like Christ. He is one of a kind. He is God incarnate. He is the Word made flesh. He is true light, true life. And what we know is coming and is anticipated by the claim that He is the Lamb of God is that this most beautiful, amazing being that has ever existed is about to be crushed. As we begin to come to our conclusion, I want to read for us a, a poem called Calvary Lamb. And this was originally written as a spoken word 
and it speaks beautifully and very clearly about Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God made man and come to die for us. It says this, It was the first time I've seen it. I didn't really know what I was looking at. I was captivated by the message, but also horrified of the scene. How could something so beautiful be so gruesome? How could something that appeared so weak be so strong? How could one man's rights cover all of men's wrongs? How is it that a single man's innocence could rescue the guilty? How could rivers of grace cover God's enemies? Calvary, the God-man. In submission to his father, he came down from his throne to be mocked and slaughtered. So let's focus on one word for now, God. He is infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-seeing, the originator with no origin, the creator of all beings, God. True definition of perfect, the standard of holiness, God became man and dwelt in our midst, man. God became man. I struggled to help my daughter with seventh grade math, so don't expect me to deliver this and for you to perfectly understand, but God became man and put on sinful flesh, lived a perfect life, and fulfilled all righteousness. Human life was necessary because it's us, yes, us, humans who are guilty. That's why God became man, because only man deserves the penalty. But this man was perfect undeserving, unflawed, a man who perfectly abided in God's law, took upon himself the wrath that we deserved and died for the unrighteous Jesus, the Lamb of Calvary, all so we could be reconciled to the Father and be part of his family. This is actually a spoken word written by our very own Robert Hudson, and you can go and check it out on YouTube. It's a beautiful word of the spotless Lamb of God. God became flesh to be the sacrifice for our sins. So as we close, there is so much that we could say regarding this text. A part of me wants to just say, behold God's glory. Behold what he has done. Behold salvation. But I also want for us to consider today, what do we take and what do we do with this? And I would challenge you today. Are you like John the Baptist? Are you bearing witness to the glory of God? Are you bearing witness to the Lamb who was slain? Do you say with your life, with your words, with your actions, behold the Lamb of God? We should. We ought to be proclaiming the glory of Christ, obviously now more than ever, but you're around. We ought to be proclaiming to the world the message of hope, the same message of hope that John brought but one even greater. For we here in this place where we are in redemptive history point back to when Christ came and say, behold, the Lamb of God. But we also in this point in redemption history, like John, point forward to say, behold, the Lion of Judah is coming back. Victory is ours. And he's going to come and set all things right. I would encourage you this week I would encourage you around Christmas with your family, with your friends, if you have to work this week a couple more days with your coworkers, seek to proclaim to them, to your family, to your friends, behold, the Lamb of God, behold, the Lion of Judah. Let's pray.